This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. From a smattering of ominous right-wing compounds in the Pacific Northwest in the 1970s to the shocking January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, America has seen the culmination of a long-building war on democracy being waged by a fundamentally violent and anti-democratic far-right movement that unironically calls itself the Patriot Movement. So how did we get here? And where do we go from here? Award-winning journalist David Nywert explains everything in his new book, The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assault on American Democracy. David Nywert will join me later in the show. First, Jory Lewis is an author who has written a book that I have been absolutely I've been immersed in now for the, for the last few weeks since it arrived. The book is titled Slaves for Peanuts, a story of conquest, liberation, and a crop that changed history. Jory Lewis, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thank you for having me. This is, and I think I just said to you in my preamble, what a remarkable book. Thank you so much for writing this. This is this is an education. It's a history lesson. It's a geography lesson. It's a humanity lesson. I mean, it's so many stories and, and there's so much involved in here. It, it's just a remarkable book. I love every page of this. I really do. So here I am going on about how wonderful it is. So let's get into it. My first question to you is, is that I think at the, I think, I believe it's at the front of your book. You, you say something, there's a quote, you say, how do we tell the stories of people that history forgets and the present avoids? What a great quote. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it sort of speaks to the larger sort of inspiration for the book. Yeah. So the preface um, I resisted for a long time, kind of, you know, the book's a history. So I, I resisted kind of putting myself into it. And my editor really did insist. He's like, you got to give a, a sort of way into the to the book for people. And so, yeah, I think it was kind of just like the background of my thinking ever since I sort of made this discovery, which I also describe in the preface, that there's this form of sort of discrimination based on descendants sort of still existed in some places in Senegal and in other places that I wanted to, to think about how could I uncover those stories? How could I tell, tell a story about these, these people or any people who are kind of lost to the, to the great beyond, you know? Yes. Yeah. So Senegal, it sounds very exotic. It's a name that I think a lot of us maybe have heard of. And we go, oh, yeah, Senegal, that's some sort of exotic place far away in Africa. But we really don't know. I mean, I'm saying generally, I don't think we really know too much about Senegal, where it is, what it is, etc. Can you just briefly, for my listeners, just give us a little sort of overview of Senegal? Sure. Um, Senegal is, uh, or at least, you know, has the westernmost point in, in Africa. So it's a coastal country, uh, very, you know, it's relatively small. It's very small to me as an American, right? It's the, about the size of, I forget, is it South Dakota or North Dakota? One of the yeah. Dakotas at any rate. It's not very large. Um, it has about 15 or 16 million people. So pretty well populated for us. I think that's bigger than South or North Dakota. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So in it's a country that because I think of its placement like on the coast and it's relatively far north. So it's, um, you know, it's a part of the Sahelian belt at the very top. The north of Senegal is Mauritania. North of Mauritania, it's Morocco. Right. And so then we're, yes. we're getting pretty close to the European continent there. So it's, um, it's a place that's. That's, you know, maybe from a European sort of context is both distant and, and near, right? It's kind of like just on the outer edges of where it was and the outer edges of their, their sort of consciousness, right? Yes. And I think from a very early point, 
you know, already even in the early 15th century, you have sort of European um, European mariners sort of sailing down and making contact with with people in Senegal. So you have a kind of broad sweep of history that um, the Senegalese people are are included in. And I guess even before that, right, there's a relatively, um, you know, there's a pretty large connection with the trans-Saharan, trans-Saharan trades of all kinds, whether it's slaves or spices and gold, all kinds of stuff like that. So that Senegal, again, in this area that is now what we call Senegal was was a part of that. Yes, yes. And it also was, uh, as you say, uh, the, the, the point of departure for slave trade to the Americas. Yeah, I, I describe in the book a little bit, you know, because of course the book isn't really about the transatlantic trade, but you get a lot of things that the book isn't yeah. about, right? Like, yes, yeah, book, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is the larger context of it, because I think in a way that the um, the, the the story of slaves for peanuts doesn't make sense without the transatlantic slave trade. It needs yes. like all we have to understand the broad sweep of history. But yeah, the 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 Portuguese and later the Dutch and the British and the French sort French, of come yeah. to co- yeah. coastal Senegal and come to I think I, I talk about it in the book the 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 Portuguese their their first trip up the Gambia River. And, you know, then they're being sort of like repelled by people with like poison darts. And stuff yeah. Like that. Yes. So there is a connection quite early. So, you know, I think that's one of them. Their initial contacts is like, uh, you know, they steal their their initial contact is that they did, in fact, kidnap some people. Uh, but when they come back, they realize they're like, oh, we can't just like kidnap people. So they kind of develop trade relationships with right. people to, to sell slaves. Yeah. So let's, before we go any further, let's talk about this very strange thing called a peanut. But what are peanuts? So where do peanuts come from? They're such a mysterious thing. And you give us what you understand to be the history of the peanut and where the peanut comes from. I had no clue, no idea. And I think most of my listeners right now would just be, just love to know just a little bit about the peanut. Can you talk about that? But um, yeah, the peanut is a legume uh, and it comes from a part of South America, part of Bolivia, the Gran Chaco region. That's where it's it's its center of origin, where uh, biologists think it sort of developed. Um, and then from there, it spread out all over the continent. So it moved, you know, the, the archaeologists were finding peanuts in, in Incan graves and, or caves. They were finding them in coastal Brazil and you know, we think, or I think, it's the royal we, but I think that, um, uh, or, you know, and many botanists believe that even on Columbus's initial visit, he <laughs> might have seen something that was like the peanut. He's, you know, there are all these, um, these texts where he writes about seeing different kinds of beans and, you know, different kinds of peas maybe it was a peanut right and but we know that very quickly the peanuts spread to um throughout the rest of the world right following i think you know spanish and portuguese mariners too so it spread to china it spread to the philippines it spread of course also to africa where again they already had trade relationships with people especially on the coast my story sort of took me on this strange tangent when my sort of main character, this guy, Walter Taylor, he'd work for this, um, this Boston shipmaster, you know, uh, exporting peanuts to, to New England and to New York. And so then I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole, like trying to understand like why they were importing peanuts from, from West Africa. And I realized that, that uh, the peanuts suffered under a kind of persistent stigma over time that it had been related to mostly to um to slaves so that the people felt i guess white people felt that it was enslaved food for the enslaved uh and yeah it just had a kind of stigma maybe i don't, I don't know if we can even think of a kind of corollary now you know? no. and so then yeah after the civil war there was a particular peanut booster who had an you know who wanted to, the the u.s to grow more peanuts so in fact um yeah even in the i think it's in the 1840s or 1830s which i don't talk about in the book there was a a spike in american peanut um 
peanut importation from West Africa. And then later, the, 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 the U.S. government did establish some kind of tariffs on peanut importation, yes. obviously later to protect uh, sort of nascent industry. But it took some years. I think, you know, peanuts weren't really widely grown until the 20th century. So until then, yeah, there were, you know, peanuts were being widely grown in West Africa. And really, West Africa is not very far away from, 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 from the United States failing on the on the on the current just across you know but before peanuts became a, a food a source of nutrition peanut oil was what it was all about in west africa and i want to talk about that because soap became very very popular in france in paris people didn't bathe at one point in time and then it became very popular to bathe with soap but they needed oils to make soap and, and oil was becoming was a, needed some other substitutes for the different kinds of oils for whale blubber and all kinds of things that was being used. And somebody came across the idea, the way you would describe it in the book, that peanut oil could be used. I had no idea what a, the, the sort of correlation between soap and then peanuts. And then, wow, talk to us about the, that whole sort of understanding that that need for oil and peanut oil yeah so i think in the in the book i talk about the kind of um this sort of it's you know it's by then really fully on the middle of the industrial revolution in europe and so there's a kind of large demand for oil in general not just for soap at first right yeah uh, just um oil to like grease the wheels of new machineries right that are like you know pushing peasants off farms and and, you know, replacing their labor, right? So yes. there are all these machines that need oiling. Um, you know, this initial period is also before the discovery of, of petrol. So even lighting oil. So you think about all the things that, you know, now that later replaced. So petrol really replaced all kinds of uses, like oil lamps, that kind of stuff. So, and then, yeah, the soap is, um, a part of it was the hygiene revolution, but a part of it was also the industrial revolution. People needed soap for, manufacturers needed soap to like wash textiles, for instance, like, like, um, like wool, which had a, a lot of sort of oily, fatty substance on it, right? Yeah. So um, the story of the peanut sort of, you know, fitting, you know, the, the people, people in Europe were kind of just looking for oil anywhere, right? Like, as you said, they're like killing whales, they're like importing, um, what do you call beef tallow from like yes. Russia or whatever, you know, like they're just like they're doing everything, they're doing the most. And um, yeah, so then they're looking for good sources of oil and the peanut does have you know, certain varieties of peanut have, have a, a lot of oil in them. And then for the French, for their soap industry, because the British eventually settled on palm oil as kind of their thing. That's yes. like why we have that, that thing called palm olive, you know. The French were not happy with a sort of orangish, pinkish oil, you know, which is what yes. palm oil would make. And uh, their, in their sort of recipe for Savon de Marseille, uh, the peanut also is very closely, um, it's like it has a very close chemical formulation to olive oil. And so it was able to be substituted for olive oil in their Savon de Marseille for up to a certain percentage, which was really helpful to French industry, which was having trouble because of, you know, at the, at the time, I think there had been a number of um, frost that killed a lot of olive trees across, across not just Europe, the Mediterranean, but even the Levant. Uh, you know, which is like the Middle East, essentially. So, um, yeah, so that's how peanut kind of emerged as the victor in, in French soap industry, especially, and became really like a target for French merchants. You know, here we are, you and I smiling at one another, because there's lots of sort of, I guess, somewhat humorous aspects to your story. But there's also an incredibly serious side to the story. And I want to get into that. Let me just let my listeners know, if you're just joining us, my guest is Jory Lewis. Her book is titled Slaves for Peanuts, a story of conquest, liberation, and a crop that changed history. Let's go back and talk about you and your heritage. You're descended from freed slaves. Am I right in that? Yeah, I mean, my on both sides of my family, presumably, they were enslaved. 
we've only traced, you know, really well my father's side to a, yeah. a particular a particular ancestor who fought in the civil war and was freed. Yeah. So for you starting this book, and, and I'm curious about this, Jory, but it, it, it's, it's the very, very beginnings for you when you when you set about going, OK, I'm going to write a book about peanuts. And then you went into it a little more. And of course, you come up with this very striking title, Slaves for Peanuts. It's a great title. Talk to me about the beginnings, about about deciding to write about peanuts and slaves. Yeah, you know, I didn't start out saying, like, I want to write a book about peanuts. I think, um, yeah, they came together, right? You know, right. I think I started out maybe being in Senegal, living in Senegal, where I, 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 I describe in the preface that I came with a fellowship to, to write about food security. You know, this peanuts are, you know, the, the apex predator of, of the agricultural economy in, in Senegal. And so, of course, I, I spent a lot of time in the peanut basin trying to understand like kind of how it worked, how it was functioning. And yeah, um, the, the story I described in the book and the preface is that I had been spending a lot of time in a few particular villages. And in one, the farmers were trying to form a collective. And the man who uh, I thought and, and my friend who was an agronomist thought um, should be the president of this, 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 this farmers association was excluded from a leader, leadership position because he was descended from enslaved people. And though, although, of course, I knew there had been slavery within Africa, I never had, you know, I always had that understanding. Yes. I didn't realize it was sort of still sort of touching people's lives. You know, I might have, I did later write a sort of essay thinking about this uh, and how, how kind of people were still living uh, in some cases with the, the stigma, how it was still kind of affecting their lives today. So I guess I might have continued to write in the present, you know, sort of the present time, right? I might have done a book of reportage, but I wanted to reach back into history and to understand how all of it kind of came together. I think it's not just like how slaves and peanuts are intertwined, but how sla how peanuts also conquered the rural economy how peanuts yeah. became this 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 uh uber crop and how colonialism sort of provided the provided the the means by which that happened so i think it was it was like all of those things that once i think that happened that um interested me and kind of drew me to the project I should let my listeners know that the book is packed with maps and prints and photographs. That must have been just, I, I, I think, because I'm just fascinated by these things, must have been so enjoyable collating all those different references and putting them together in the book. It, I'm sure it took an awful long time. Fun for me were the the images from the mission, which we haven't talked about yet, but it's... It, um those images because it helped so much, you know, I was writing about this particular person, this Walter Taylor and, you know, the, 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 you know, freed slaves that he was working with. And it was so gratifying to find this kind of treasure trove of, of photos to kind of, to look in, look at them and kind of imagine what they were thinking. I think for me, that was, that was really the best part for me, you know, the other photos, the kind of colonial photos, they're um, they're you know they're kind of like in the they're in the ether of Senegal. Like the, you still okay, see yeah. them all. You yes. see them quite a bit sometimes, and so it was less interesting. And then, of course, the cover photo of the beautiful cover of the peanut is was also, you know, people don't realize how beautiful a plant yes. the peanut really is, you know, and that it's got these delicate little flowers and it's just, yeah, it's just so lovely. I was so happy to be able to, to use that photo on the, or that illustration on the, on the cover. You know, Jory, you, it, throughout this, the book, I mean, there's a story and I want to get to, I want to, cause you've touched on the man's name a number of times now, a couple of times. And I want to get back to Walter Taylor because uh, it's such an important character in the book. But throughout the story or stories that you tell, you weave other stories into the story. And I love that. I love where you take us off somewhat on tangents and you give us little little references here and little re lovely stuff. It's, it's very engaging. Talk to us about Walter Taylor. You've mentioned him twice. That's such an important character. Yeah, I, I think that Walter Taylor, you know, I 
Walter Taylor was not in my initial proposal for the yeah. book, which is shocking for many people. But uh, he just emerged somehow through a small reference I read about him. And then I just went down a rabbit hole and then I managed to find 20 years of correspondence that he, he wrote between him and the, the director in France, the mission director. And I realized that I could um, really draw out his story because that's also part of when you're writing a book like this, just having enough source material to be able to, to, to sustain a narrative is really a challenge. But uh, Walter Taylor um, is a Sierra Leonean of liberated African origin uh, and even before starting this book, I did not know what liberated African was, but I'll explain it here. Uh, so uh, in, in Sierra Leone, after the abolition of the slave trade, not slavery itself, but the trade, the British established a post uh, in Freetown to kind of police the coast for British slavers. And if they found uh, British slave ships, or, uh, you know, later there were also other reciprocal treaties with other countries as they also abolished the trade. They would bring uh, the people back to Freetown, right? So, and then people would uh, not be able to necessarily go back to their own country, but they would be, um, they would be established outside of, in a number of communities just outside of Freetown. So this, that's the story of Walter Taylor's parents. And he grew up in a community where, many people had uh, the same experience, right? So they'd all been, they'd all lived through this kind of, this kind of trauma of enslavement, this trauma of being packed onto a slave ship and, and have been sort of rescued, let's say, but not uh, allowed to, 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 to retake their former lives, right? Yeah. So they're still like undergoing this, this really critical displacement uh, and also probably a kind of, you know, new names, new ways of being, this kind of thing. So he had just like a fascinating childhood, right? Yes. Uh, and then he, he goes to, he eventually ends up in, uh, in Gore, which is an island off the coast of what's now Dakar. And, um, and it was a major sort of trade spot. And again, he was working for this, this uh, American shipmaster exporting peanuts. And from there, he, he meets a French Protestant it seems the way he describes it, like he had some kind of revelation, especially that seems to be inspired by, by seeing the workers on Gore, which uh, slavery has been abolished on Gore, of course, but he says, and many people also say that uh, the, the people once, the, once slavery had been abolished in 1848 still lived the same types of lives that they had. And I, there's, there's one historian said, who said they had the same measure of freedom that they had before, you know, yes. which is no freedom at all, right? No so, there is, so, yeah. there, so he seems to be sort of aggrieved by this condition also, but also he sort of sees an opportunity for himself. Uh, to make a name for himself within the church, which is, I don't know, it's a kind of common way to make a name for yourself. Um, uh, and he, he moves to the capital, San Luis, to become uh, an evangelist. And later he becomes the, the sort of key director of the Protestant mission. And he starts a, a, key, a signature project called the Mission for Runaway Slaves, or Shelter yes. for Runaway Slaves. So you've just touched on something which I've really wanted to get into talking to you about, and that is the church, the Catholic and the Protestant church, who play an incredibly important role in your story. As the church, Protestant and Catholic, has done throughout the centuries, in, in, certainly in the Western world, give me just an overview of how important the, both the, the Protestant and Catholic churches were in East Africa, it's, well, we're talking about the 17th, 18th century. Catholics sort of came with the administration, the French sort of French administration uh, by the mid. And so, yeah, they've been sort of having a lot of power forever. Right. This is yeah. the story of the Catholic Church in France. It's, it's not pretty. And it has like, you know, there there's a lot of sort of corruption. You know, sort of what's interesting about this time, too, is that Protestants who in Europe and in France, have been like persecuted for generations, maybe in the last, I think it's like, uh, you know, it's not very much time before this period that they're finally kind of allowed to live freely. Uh, and you have a number of sort of Protestants in the administration. 
And then as the Third Republic sort of starts, um, I think the Third Republic starts in the 1870s. Don't quote me on that. But like when the Third Republic starts, there's a even more of a kind of um, this this kind of movement to take sort of religion out of the state. So we get like what France is today, this these policies of laicite, uh, you know, sort of secularism. So those are also kind of trying to, in, to imprint themselves. So then the Protestants have like a very sort of strange position, you know, although they're deeply religious people, they're, you know, uh, they're often like on the side of these like secularist policies, or they're often like maybe trying to sort of, you know, trying to kind of jockey for influence. And especially in the context of Senegal, especially in northern Senegal, which has been, um, you know, Islamized since. Uh, you know, already nearly a thousand years at that time, right? So, like, there's a really long tradition of Islam. Uh, you know, there, there are all these, there's a lot of kind of um, power struggles in between, like, all, let's say, three religious groups. And then there are other, um, let's call them, like, animist beliefs that sort of occur yes. further south. So, you know, all of those things are kind of in a big soup together. In general, the Catholics have more institutional support even then, even even into the 1870s, 1880s. And the Protestants are just like scrappy, trying to like, you know, yes. you know, claw at any power they can get. Whilst we're talking about power, another another aspect which I think is worthwhile talking about, and that is America's involvement. America doesn't have, didn't have any colonies in, in West Africa, yet America America's involvement, incredibly important. Yeah, well, America did have, um, it did have Liberia already by that time. So, you know, there's, there's a relationship between sort of the kind of conversations about uh, sort of Black American repatriation to Africa. There's yes. a lot happening that actually don't get into the book at all. You don't know, right. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, I was so interested to find these um, documents from the American Council, who who is very interested in the political situation yeah, of Senegal. Yeah. It's not, uh, I, you know, I think he's also a New England shipmaster. That's his background. Uh, and I think there's, there's something to be said about this kind of consistent uh, and persistent connection between New England and West Africa and their interests there for yes. um, for peanuts, but also for hides for leather, for beeswax, like any number of other products. So they're just interested in all of the shifts that are happening, but they don't have any they don't have any interest then in expanding their their own empire, the Americans. You know, Jory, there is so much to investigate in your book, which is why I loved reading it so much. It's page after page. I learned something. It, it, it really is a terrific read. Yes, I've got to tell you this before, before we go. I've got to tell you this. I, I'm an avid reader, and I love books that have lots of notes and, and an extensive index. And your book has lots of notes and extensive index. And I love that. I think it's so important because I love to look up things. I love discovering something and then going, oh, she tells me about this. And I love that. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for writing such a splendid book. The title, Slaves for Peanuts, a story of conquest, liberation, and a crop that changed history. I've been talking to the author, Jory Lewis, Jory, thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Still to come, you won't want to miss this, a conversation with award-winning journalist David Nywert. His new book, The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assaults on American Democracy. Yes, it's daunting, but it's also a fascinating read. And Mr. Nywert is an engaging guest right after this. You are listening to Life Elsewhere with Norman B. You can learn more about this program at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assault on American Democracy. This is a brand new book, and what a book this is, by award-winning author and journalist, a gentleman that's been reporting and investigating right-wing extremism in the U.S. for five decades. So a large welcome to Mr. David Nywood. 
David, welcome back to Life Elsewhere. Hey, it's a pleasure being back here. David, this is such a... I think you already know this, that it's it's a bit of a daunting book. It's not exactly a happy topic, but you have an incredible way of writing that makes the, this book almost unput downable, if that's the way I can say that. I mean, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, even though it, it's not a happy story. So I really, really appreciate you writing it. So let's talk about the Age of Insurrection. So January the 6th has come and gone, and uh, some of the perpetrators now are in jail and have been punished. And uh, a lot of them have sort of, I don't know whether they're sort of regret regretting their actions or not, but we've, we've heard all kinds of things. But that's over in that regard. But but what got us to the age of insurrection, to that insurrection on January the 6th? And what's going to happen later? That's what you talk about in the book. So could we just go back in time just a little bit and talk about what got us to January the 6th? Sure. Well, um, as as you know, in the book, I largely you know date these origins back to the 1990s with the uh, rise of the uh, so-called Patriot Militia Movement uh, at that era. And... Uh, you know, it's fundamentally a, a, an anti-democratic movement. Uh, we, we call it anti-government, but really it's more anti-democratic than anti-government because they, they want government, they just want their government. Yeah. You know? Yes. Um, and, of course, it's a theory of government based on, uh, you know, this phony constitutionalism that actually has no basis in reality. It's based on in conspiracy theories and disinformation. And that's... Um, you know, it, it started uh, working its way into the mainstream in the 1990s and never stopped and really took off during the Tea Party era uh, after Barack Obama's election and um, really built momentum during those years. And it culminated in Donald Trump in a lot of ways. I mean, Trump was the ultimate patriot movement presidential candidate. And there, so there's a reason that they all rushed to support him and now rushing had rushed to defend him in 2020. And so, you know, th those are the, that's probably the origins of it. Although because it was a radical right movement, it was always affiliated, you know, the Patriot movement was always affiliated with white nationalists, uh, Christian nationalists, and these other assorted movements uh, that are on the radical right. There is also, you know, another element that really started up after Trump was elected, and that was this these street brawler organizations yes. like Proud Boys, um, uh, American Guard, uh, people like that. And uh, they are more white nationalist in origin or, or in orientation, but you know, they uh, we started seeing them in 2017, and they also have not really relented. In fact, we're seeing them now today showing up to, uh, you know, uh, drag queen <laughs> readings at, at libraries and yes. things like that. So, you know, and, and they serve as very specific function, which is to bring violence to the scene, yes. uh, to threaten and intimidate their political opponents. And that's what they do. And so, you know, those, the Patriots and the uh, street brawlers are two of the key elements that were there on January 6th. But there is also uh, the conspiracy theorists. Uh, there are also uh, white nationalists. And then finally, there are the mainstream enablers, the people yes. within the Republican Party and in the right wing media who have normalized and mainstreamed all this stuff. And those are the basically the five key elements that were present on January 6th. They had started building their momentum uh, many years before. It really kind of came to kind of fruition uh, on January 6th. But as I explained in the book, January 6th wasn't the just a culmination. It was a beginning. Something I want to just touch on but not spend more than just a second or two on and that is you yeah. mentioned you mentioned trump and how trump was important in in that he sort of 
help this along. But I think we all agree that Trump wasn't the originator. I would go as far as saying that Trump saw a a way to make even more money. It always seems to me that everything about Trump is about making money. And I just wondered, and as I said, I don't want to dwell on this, but I just wondered if that's your take on the whole Trump involvement. Yeah, I do. It's I, you know, it's really hard to tell um, with folks at the top uh, whether they're really true believers or whether yeah. they're crass opportunists. It's always hard to sort of suss those out because they're really closely intertwined and frequently, you know, as in the case of people like Trump, uh, there's a mix of both. Yes. Um, and uh, but Trump definitely saw, you know, in 2011, which is when his political career originated by promoting the birther conspiracy theories. It's clear that he saw an opportunity there to reel in the rubes, as it were. Yes. Uh, But he also, I think, uh, saw the opportunity to begin a political career, which he did then. And, you know, this political career was based on conspiracism. And it always was that element. And when you have a politics based in conspiracism, you can't, it's fundamentally anti-democratic because it's, you can't have true democratic discourse when your, your discourse is, is nothing but disinformation and conspiracy theories. So well, as, as I often hear, and I think it may be on MSNBC where they say planet one or earth one and earth two, earth two, yeah. you know, representing yeah. the conspiracy theorists. One thing that I just want to touch on, and again, I, I'd like to get your take on this. And this is something which has always just like not tickled me, but it's kind of, if it wasn't so unpleasant, it would be rather funny. Proud boys. It just seems to me, what a, what an odd, peculiar name to call yourselves when there's nothing proud about what you're doing, and you're certainly not boys. So bizarre. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, the the origins of the Proud Boys, of course, go back to Gavin McInnes and his yes, um, his radio uh, TV show uh, or his you know his podcasts, and um, and McInnes is sort of the classic alt right sort of character, the alt right. Really, their whole metier was uh, this heavy irony, heavy use of memes, use of uh, humor, and to um, promote their agenda. As you know, is almost an attitudinal thing as much as it was a, a strategic choice. But um, yeah, he named them after <laughs> a song in a Disney musical, uh, "Proud of Your Boy." Uh, which he uh, yes, which yes. he loathed. Yes, and uh, he thought so. He named the Proud Boys sort of ironically after that song, um, because it was like we're you know we're basically spitting in the face of these wimpy men. When you bring up McGinnis, it now leads me, and I don't want to go off on too many tangents, but it makes me think of just how much misogyny is involved in all yeah. of the of the alt right. Can you speak on that? Sure. Well, I think uh, it's not just the alt-right, of course. Uh, I think that misogyny is actually a fundamental aspect of pretty much every right-wing extremist movement. Yes. Um, It's really fundamental that, you know, men are men and women are women. Excellent point, yes. Don't uh, don't ever confuse the two. But, But yeah, McInnes in particular really specialized in a lot of misogynist talk on his show's that's why you know it's, it's an exclusively male organization, the Proud Boys. Yes, and you know, and they also have these weird rules like no masturbating and, yes. and, and <laughs> stuff like this. It, it's really this kind of very pathetic view of masculinity, uh, if you ask me. But I come from an older generation, so um. <laughs> now the book. The Age of Insurrection is broken down into wonderful chapters. One chapter that I, I'm I'm fascinated by is White Fright. And mm-hmm. there's a piece that you say um, where you and I'm Andrew Anglin's name for Trump, glorious leader. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 let's just go into that just for a moment, because I think this is very important. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's. Of course, this again, he being an alt, uh, England being an alt right 
figure uh, was, you know, sort of using irony and humor, but it's also, I think, really reflects the underlying authoritarianism in, involved here. Because, um, you know, in authoritarian mentalities, um, the er everything revolves around uh, fealty to uh, the glorious leader, to, you know, the the leader is essential to these right-wing extremism, especially to authoritarianism, um, because that's the nexus of their devotion. And yeah, I mean, you know, really fundamental to all that is the view that the leader's uh, instincts and ideas are infallible and and uh you know basically what everybody should follow of course that's that's one of the three uh that's the first of the three behavioral nodes that define authoritarian personalities yes you know authoritarian submission uh the second is authoritarian aggression uh which is aggression directed toward anyone who fails to uh you know <laughs> bend the knee to the glorious leader Yes. And, and then finally, the third note is um, uh, conventionalism, which is this idea that they represent the true America. Um, so and the combination of those three behavioral and attitudinal nodes are uh, is creates a, a lot of different personality traits that we find throughout authoritarian personalities, including, you know, uh, susceptibility to conspiracism, a, a very high tolerance for bigotry, if not actual participation in bigotry, a uh, and as well as the a very strong view that, you know, they're more popular than they actually are. So, um, yeah, and, and these, these authoritarian personalities, you know, are present in every society, but you can induce a, an authoritarian response in public where they retreat to sort of a, to authoritarianism as a refuge uh, by fear-mongering, by create, spreading as much fear as possible, which actually sends people into this sort of crouch where they are mostly concerned about their own security and the safety of their families and so on and so forth. And mind you, those are things that are very normal for most people. They're, everyone's concerned about the security of their family and, and their, their loved ones, right? And the stability of society, yes. yeah. which yeah. is what the authoritarian appeals really appeal to. But they're not, um, you know, it's the authoritarian personalities will basically throw out democracy and throw out democratic institutions and anything else because they want to go get into this uh, state where things are simpler and things are cleaner, they think, by having an authoritarian ruler. They think. I think that's in quotes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, there's something that you just said that I want to pick up on. It's personalities. And I, I, I want just to th throw out some names to you. And we'll just see what you say. Just remind my listeners, I'm talking to David Nywertz. His new book is called The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assaults on American Democracy. Such a good read. Charlie Kirk, what do you think? So Charlie Kirk is one, basically, essentially one of these um, right-wing operators who's attempting to tap into this authoritarian trend. And he's he's doing it from, he's trying to ride this middle zone yes. between normal people or normal Republicans right-wing extremists and so he dabbles in and encourages all the extremist stuff but he he travels around the country organizes talking uh, turning point usa uh which is his organization into a, basically a college recruitment program for young people uh to get draw young people into these uh into this right-wing extremist movement you know he's um I can't tell whether he's actually an opportunist or uh, a, a true believer, but I, I suspect he's a mix of both like everybody else. And um, what Charlie in particular did that uh, drew my attention was, you know, he had, he does these events on college campuses and he had one in Nampa, Idaho uh, two years ago. 
where he had, you know, his audience members to stand up and ask him questions. And one of them, one of them got up and said, so when do we get to use the guns? Uh, when are, when are we going to start shooting yes. people if they're going to steal our elections? Yeah. And, um, and interestingly, Kirk didn't respond by saying, Oh, that's terrible. You know, you never, we would never do that. No, he just said, Oh, don't say that out loud, basically. Yes. Uh, because then they'll use that against us, you know. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, he was basically saying, Well, just, just wait a while and then we'll get there to the point, to that point where we need to use the guns. You know, and this taps into one of the things that's actually most concerning to me is, is how widespread the talk about, civil war is among the uh, not just the radical right anymore but among uh you know increasingly mainstream republican types especially online right uh, and uh you know they're all very proud of the fact that they all have ar-15s in their basement you know yes. <laughs> and, and another um, another name that i want to uh, uh, focus on uh, because you talk about in the book Nick Fuentes, and you say at one point Fuentes addressed the crowd with a bullhorn. We're up against the media and against the giant corporations and against the swamp and the government and the CIA and the FBI and the intelligence community, and it's a pretty high path ahead of us. Nick Fuentes, is he like a Charlie Kirk? What is he? No, actually, he's he definitely moves in a, a much more extremist uh, sort of uh, circle than Charlie Kirk. Kirk, like I said, tries to walk that line between the mainstream and the radical right. Uh, Nick Fuentes and his organization, America First, um, are really uh, uh, explicitly white nationalist. Uh, they're explicitly anti-Semitic, uh, explicitly uh, bigoted towards non-white minorities and bigoted towards gay people, the LGBTQ community. And he, I mean, remember, he, uh, uh, Fuentes, of course, had dinner alongside yes. Kanye West with Donald Trump yeah. uh, in Florida not too long ago. You know, and, and Trump was very congenial with him, and, and he came away very encouraged because uh, he, he was a big Trump fan, although then he became a started promoting Kanye West's presidential campaign. So, <laughs> yes, yes, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Fuentes is uh, his, his America first organization holds an annual convention every year, uh, usually in conjunction with the conservative political action committee and, or CPAC. He, he usually holds it in the same town as CPAC as a sort of competing event. At, you know, at the last one that he had uh, in February, they they were um, they were praising Hitler, uh, they were praising Putin, they were um, and uh, doing, you know, engaging in yeah a lot of discussion of having uh, a, a civil war, uh, being ready to t take violence to the streets. So. Then there are the the names that were apparently in the war room on the night before January the 6th, and then been sort of shadow, well, not, not even shadowy, been figures around all this insurrection. I'm not, I don't know what, what you call it leading up to it. But anyway, these these names see, keep coming up. Roger Stone, Steve Bannon. And uh, Alex Jones. These names seem to. Oh, oh, and the other one, Sebastian Corker, not Alex Jones. Sebastian Corker. These names seem to be always sort of lurking around somewhere. Your take on on Corker, Stone, and and Bannon? Well, those guys are, if anything, pretty much the brains of the whole uh, anti-democratic movement, uh, the the war on democracy, and they're pretty explicit about. Uh, uh, trying to tear democracy down and replace it with an autocratic Putin-style regime, and they and Bannon in particular, you know, who's who not only is spreading this stuff in the United States, he goes to Europe and organizes right-wing extremists there. He's gone to Australia to recruit the radical right into this, but he, he calls it right-wing populist movement, but. Really, it's fundamentally 
um, crypto fascist uh, authoritarianism. Hasn't he been uh, heavily involved with the new prime minister in Italy? Yeah, yeah, he's pretty close friends with uh, Maloney, the uh, Italian prime minister, who has, of course, a neo-fascist background as well. And then, and then our good friend uh, Ron DeSantis was just had a meeting with her at a big hug, etc. Didn't he? I believe. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And it's, of course, it's not just Maloney; it's uh, Orban in Hungary, right? Yeah, Erdogan in Turkey, yeah. Uh, and there are far-right uh, ascendant elements in germany and sweden uh and farage farage in the uk right yes yes yeah Yeah. then there are the the talking heads i guess you could call them but they seem a little bit more than that alex jones michelle malkin people like that how do they figure into all this well they've been basically you know malkin has been doing this for a long time yes yes the early 2000s has been edging towards a sort of uh uh, neo-fascist ideology and and more recently she's openly embraced i mean she's uh they they call her she's very close to uh, nick fuentes these days yes and um they call her you know um fuentes's followers they call themselves the the groipers yes groiper army yes and malkin is the uh groiper mommy uh <laughs> is is commonly uh, that's and she embraces that name so yeah there and so malkin has been you know i mean she's been pushing this stuff since the early 2000s and um but wasn't as radical back then uh now she's just explicitly extremist you know uh and like i say is 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 a big fan of nick fuentes and so yeah there and for that matter uh tucker carlson people like that more on the mainstream right are um have always promoted her and uh given her a spot you know she used to be a regular on fox news and um so you know there are a lot of people who i would say traditionally operated within the republican right who've completely gone off into the abyss of this anti-democratic movement she's probably one of the leading figures what once you're just talking about fox news has the revelations that have come out recently about all the lies, et cetera, and just the craziness over at Fox, has that altered anything with the right extremists? Has that changed their views at all? No, you know, authoritarianism is a powerful (laughs) drug. (laughs) And uh, the true believers never stop believing, no matter how much evidence you raise against them, you know, no matter how much you demonstrate the falsity of their positions you know they they will they just won't stop it's sort of like um and i think sometimes it's comparable to what happens to people who've been uh suckered by con artists uh, they they absolutely refuse to acknowledge that they've been that they suckered. suckered which leads me to great segue to chapter 7 alt america with a cue. This is such an important chapter because you you go into great detail and talk about Q, which for anybody that hasn't really just done any sort of looking into this at all, you've got to re- you've got to read what's what David has written here. This is a totally fascinating area, David, and I'm sure just like me, you're still just like scratching your head, going, "What in the world?" I mean, it's just so <laughs> nuts. It's just crazy stuff. Well. Uh- Actually, I don't because I oh, okay. I was I grew up in southern Idaho. <laughs> yes, in, yeah, that's in right. In the sixties, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. with all of these John Birch Society yes, uh, influences yes. uh, in my milieu, and so I actually developed a pretty early immunity to conspiracism. Yes, because I was exposed to it at a young age. Yeah, the, the you know the a lot of this stuff so yeah I, I, honestly i've been studying these conspiracy theories so long that nothing they come no, up with nothing right. surprises you right well yeah. i mean i i sometimes have to laugh <laughs> yes like, yeah. oh, well that's really bad shit you yes know? yes yeah but, but yeah no i mean it's that's that's and that's part of the thing is that you know once people go down those rabbit holes and once they 
become true believers, it's really, really hard to convince them to come out otherwise. Because like I say, facts and logic and reason don't have no bearing in their world uh, because they reject them. You know, if it goes against the narrative that they believe, they reject it. And this is sort of part of the mentality. I mean, ultimately, the people who buy into conspiracism develop an idea of what they think the world is, what they think the world should be like, and they try to make the world fit into that paradigm that they've created for themselves. And anything that doesn't fit into the paradigm that they believe is rejected as fake news or, you know, illegitimate, anything, any tidbit that might be possibly interpreted in their favor, they ardently adopt and promote. And so this is, you know, it's basically, it's the difference between fundamentalism and science. You know, in science, you gather the evidence and then reach a conclusion based on the evidence that you've gathered, you know, and fundamentalism decides what the truth already is and then goes around searching for evidence to support that belief. And that's what, that's what they do. What's the future hold, David? Because you've points in this direction with the age of insurrection. So what's David Nywert's take on where we go from here? Well, I think we're in a really difficult conundrum uh, because, I mean, one of the, the aspects of all this is that, I mean, ultimately what has happened is that we've found that one of our two major parties in the country has become hostile to democracy, which means that they're no, you know, the, the Republican Party is fundamentally uh, organized now to uh, harm democracy and to take it down. Yes. Uh, how and how do we deal with our neighbors and friends who are Republican and who are willing to throw democracy under the bus in the name of these autocratic regimes that they, that they favor? Um, you know, they're no longer viable partners. I mean, one of the things that happened, of course, during the 1920s and 30s, during the, the FDR years, was that we went through this turmoil and basically came down in the by the late 30s with this uh, sort of ruling, uh, cooperative ruling regime between conservatives and, and liberals, yes. where you know, they would balance each other out, but they were all united in agreeing that democracy was the fun, core principle. And, you know, it was basically a partnership in democracy. Yes. And now the Republicans have established themselves as completely unreliable and untrustworthy partners in that democracy. How do we proceed from there? I don't know exactly. I don't think there are any easy answers for this because I think pulling people out of these beliefs and pulling them out of these rabbit holes um, takes place very, very slowly and it's really difficult. And I don't know that I mean, I, I'm afraid that we're going to reach a stage where we have extreme violence in the country that's going to finally wake us up, because I don't think the country is likely to actually wake up until something really terrible happens. I mean, that's that's the history of this country, that, that we ignore looming crises until they actually become, uh, you know, existential threats. And I think we're getting close to that. Uh, with this epistemic crisis that we're in. Uh, and I say epistemic crisis because, I mean, we can't even agree on what's truth and what's not. Right, right. yes. And, and so how can you have a, a democratic discourse in that environment? And I don't think we're going to be able to repair it until, Amer and right now we're kind of sleepwalking on this stuff. I don't think we're really aware of the threat to democracy. I don't think we're really aware of... Um, where we are at as a as a nation and i think it's going to take something horrible to wake us up and i think that when we do wake up that americans will do the right thing and and uh you know work to repair their democracy um but i'm afraid that uh all of our efforts until then are going to be pretty middling I would love to spend a, a, another session talking to you about that because I think it's something we could explore in in a lot more detail and it's 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 just a fascinating area. I love talking to you. I really enjoy your book. It is a daunting read. It is 
Yes, it is kind of scary what David writes here, but I highly recommend The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assault on American Democracy. David Nywert, thank you so very much for joining me once again at Life Elsewhere. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you to my guests, Jory Lewis and David Nywert. Details about their books are up at lifeelsewhere.co. Now make sure you let me know what you think of Life Elsewhere. My email address comes up in the closing credit. Do jot it down. Till next time, be well, be safe, and remember it doesn't cost a penny. Be nice. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind-the-scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Thank you.